You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Right at zero. Love it. So pretty. Got a good question this weekend, Kirk. Someone messaged me. Might might have messaged all of us. I'm not sure. And he said, I'm watching world championships like you recommended to do, and it's awesome. But I'm so confused about the pro warm-ups. And maybe I'm being a little having a little hyperbole here, but the 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 theory behind it, the, the gist of his message was that I don't understand the pro warmups. They show these people in the call room and they show them getting called out to the track and they're standing around for 10 or 15 minutes. Like what, what are they doing for warmups? How are they able to stay loose in this whole like pageantry that happens at these big championships? And you and I have talked about it before, how running at nationals was challenging the first time because you have your call room. You have to get into that isolated little room with only the people in your race and sit there after they approve your spikes and approve your uniform and see that your race number is attached to you. Everything else you have to leave your warm-ups in a bin you don't get to do anything other than mill around in like a 15 by 20 room until you're taken out to the track so what does that mean for warming up because we've always preached about the your human body is like a car in winter you have to warm it up and then rev it a little bit and get it up to pace and get it up to temperature and test out the speed and then it's going to work well and he said i'm watching all these people doing none of that they're just standing there in their singlet shorts and spikes for 10 or 15 minutes and then running world leading times what is that? Well, uh, why don't you why don't you tell everybody what the answer was uh, that you gave this person? Uh, and and on top of that, uh, it was very warm in. Oh, you didn't. Oh, okay. Uh, it was very warm in Budapest. So no, I saved it for this. So it was like ninety degrees, hovering, give or take. So there was some there was some external heating up of the body going on, which I think does play a factor, and it does help you stay loose once you are already warm. But uh, the floor is yours. You wanted to start with this. I'm, I'm, my interest is peaked. Well, I want to hear what you would have said because I didn't a- answer him. I have a definitive answer. If you want me to start, I'll start. Well, I can start. Sure. I mean, because we've played a very uh, downgraded role from what these world level athletes are doing mm-hmm. uh, in our previous life being track athletes, um, that's all done off camera. So, of course, they have their, their warm up routine probably starts. 60 minutes before the actual gun goes off in some capacity and all that stuff happens. They either have like a warm up track, a facility somewhere close by in which the athletes can go use. So they're getting their running in their dynamics in any sort of plyo movements. And then they're getting rushed to the corral being held in the holding room. And so they're probably done with all of the moving 10 minutes before their race, but they've done it all. You just haven't seen it. So that would be my first stab at it without getting into too much detail. Yeah. And they don't show it at the world level very often or Olympic level. But if you watch the Diamond League meets or the some of the Grand Prix that they have, they'll show the behind the scenes warm up area. And I love seeing it because you'll see all these guys, you see that they're probably rivals or whatever, and they're all warming up in the same area. I remember watching one and it showed like Noah Lyles and Arian Knighton 
doing all their starts and strides and everything and accelerations as Jakob Ingebrigtsen's running one way and Stewie Mc, McSwain is running back another way. And it's all these different events. They're all in different stages of their warmups. And this one was underneath the stadium. There are some there in an attached building. And uh, you, there was actually even a an incident with the golf carts. Did you see this at World Championships? Uh, I heard about it, yeah. Two golf carts collided with athletes inside and shattered glass got in one of, I think it was a Jamaican sprinter's eye or something like that. Noah Lyles was in the golf cart on the way to run the 200 meter final and chaos, but they were bringing them from the athlete warm up area to the stadium. So they had a separate place to warm up and then they actually carted them there. Everything's on a time schedule because it's on TV. You know exactly when you're running. So their coaches with sprinters, they might be starting an hour 20 before their race with all their crazy warm up. The shorter the event, the longer they won't warm up for because you can't have any mistakes there. But they complete their entire warm up and then they're actually golf carted from one facility to the next facility and then they're held in the holding room and then called out. But the key is that I think there's two keys here. The first is that if you think about yourself and say you did your full warm up and then ran your first rep. And then you got interrupted for like 10 or 15 minutes. Someone came over and was like, hey, you don't belong being on the track. You got to go talk to this person. And you had to spend 10 minutes talking to someone. And they're like, no, you're good to go. If you went back to the track, how long would it take you to get ready to run your next rep? Maybe just like one or two strides. You're already into your workout, right? You've done your full warm up. You've run your first rep, maybe even your first two reps. You could stand around for 10 minutes and then do one stride and be ready to run every bit as well as you did on your first rep for that second rep. So I think that concept is what we're looking at here. And then the second most important piece to remember is that the pros are so much more fit than us with so many more millions of miles of work than we have that they can do a serious intense warm-up in order to build in a buffer zone for that 10 to 15 minutes of stagnation that the more you've done, the more you can wait and still be loose and they can do a ton because they have a massive engine and resistance to impact. So they can do a big warm up, get some serious reps in beforehand. They might run a 400 or 600 meter reps on some of them and then go to the call room and then just chill for 10 minutes. And then you see them call down onto the track and they run a stride or two and then they're ready to race. So it's, it's like they started their workout and then got interrupted for a bit and then were able to slip right back into it. Yep. I very much agree. I didn't know about the golf cart setup to and from. That makes sense because especially, I mean, all athletes, the distance runners in particular need room to move. Like they put in sometimes miles. I mean, some people put in 20 mm -hmm. minutes of running before their 1500 meter final. Like they're moving and covering distance. I'm curious if they had a warm up track or what they're an arena for them or what that area actually looked like. But, um, I think the major thing is what you see is not what's actually all happening before each race. They are very thoroughly right. warmed up and then they're forced to be caged the last 10 or 15 minutes. But any of you that have started, you know, a big race with thousands of people where you need to get there early, all you need to do is jump around a little bit, jitter, you know, like get a little jittery in place. And that's enough to kind of keep you ready to go when the gun 
goes off. And these athletes have access to opening up their strides <laughs> once they get to the track and doing some more last minute dynamics. You'll see a bunch of people, almost everybody, they call them through and then you see them do a progressive pickup down the home stretch to their starting area. Like they're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of getting a bid for an Olympic or world championship is that you have to meet requirements, certain requirements for your facilities. And one of those is a warm up area and it must have track surface because the athletes must be able to warm up in their spikes. And so there, there are all these rules to it, what you have to have. And so they take very good care of the athletes in terms of you will have an inconvenient warm-up schedule, but we will have everything you could need in order to conveniently warm up in that inconvenient schedule. Yep. Well, you've answered the big mystery. Way to go. Mm -hmm. But what it, what it should do is it should drive home the fact that be flexible with your warm-ups and training because something like this will happen to you on race day at some point. Do an abbreviated warm-up from time to time. Do an extended disjointed warm-up. Play around with different things so that no matter what happens, you have a warm-up that leaves you prepared and most importantly, feeling confident enough to race. You want to know what I think the best warm-up strategy is, especially in like the summer, is go out, hit your warm-up, hit your pickups, do all that. And then go sit in a porta potty to use it last minute, and the sweat just starts pouring <laughs> off you. And you're like, "Oh my god, I'm so hot!" And then it's over. You've culminated in your warm up in the porta potty, sitting there because it's just like a sauna. And you get out and you're mm -hmm. like, "Yeah, I'm warm for sure." That's my best advice. The porta potty finisher. What do you there think? There you go. What do you think? Porta potty finisher. <laughs> At toilet seat. Trademark that. <laughs> um, I have an add-on to our episode with Jack Bauer about uh, getting uh, professional medical help with an acute injury, getting in in time to get treatment okay. instead of instead of just sitting around waiting for your primary and then for the referral and then all that. Um, I coach Eric Thorson, who is uh, who I actually had a chance to see this week. He coincidentally was in town in Minneapolis, so he raced the Twilight Five Thousand at night which is 5K I ran last weekend, which is pretty cool considering he lives in Utah. But nonetheless, he's in PT school, physical therapy school, be a doctor of physical therapy. And he listened to our episode and he said with current laws or regulation potential changes that if you are injured, you actually do not need a doctor's referral to go to physical therapy. At least from his understanding, you can actually be like, I hurt my knee. It's really bad. You could call a physical therapy place, make an appointment to get in with a physical therapist without a doctor referring you, and then they can actually play quarterback as well for you. So you can shortcut the process even more. In terms of interacting with your insurance company? In terms of sending you to get the right imaging or to the right doctor, or they can be like a direct point of contact mm. for you. Like you're almost, it's like you would look at it as starting in the reverse order. Like you go see a doctor, they give you a referral to a specialist, then you get the imaging, then you get a diagnosis, then they send you to physical therapy. You can actually start with the physical therapist. Just shortcut the process, get in right away. They're typically pretty good at assessing or diagnosing or at least sending you the right direction. Then you're already cutting through the line. So, And they have working relationships with doctors. So apparently you can okay. uh, shortcut the process and he wanted me to. And I believe I'm saying that right, Eric. If I misspoke in some capacity, let me know. But he wanted the, the good people that are running public to know that you could actually go that route now, which I believe years ago that would have been. Uh, almost impossible without some sort of referral. So um, just thought I would add that in there as another option. Excellent. How did he end up doing in that 5K? PR'd big time. Um, <clears throat> ran, what did he run? 18. Congrats. 
Eric. Under six minute pace. Yeah. Which, uh, he doesn't get a chance to run very fast at altitude often. So we've been working on his flat ground running. So he, ran, he's, yeah, he's the one who doesn't own road shoes. Uh, he bought a pair of, uh, track spikes, uh, I think cross spikes the Ooh. week before. So he raced very well. He ran better splits than anybody in the field, which is interesting because I look back at my splits and I ran 446, 452, five flat or something like that. Like I went backwards, right? Hmm. Uh, and he was just like a metronome, like like f- six flat, six flat, 558 or whatever it was. He was just like on it. So one of the few to run very well. Beautiful. In yeah. Um, anything else we got to add at the beginning of this thing? No, let's kick it off. All right. Well, why don't you actually intro it since I just did some talking? You want me to intro? Yeah. Okay. Well... This is Kirk's topic, and then I kind of bastardized it. Kirk came up to me, slid into my DMs this morning, and said, I do have a topic for today, and I'm not telling you what it is. So then we got on here this morning, and he revealed what the topic was. And it was that he was milling around with the athletes after the 5K, and they were all lamenting the fact that as they're getting older here, they're running very consistently and doing all the things they used to do. and Many of them used to beat Kirk and or have PRs faster and Kirk's finishing with them or ahead of them or in range of them. And the gap has either closed or disappeared entirely. And one thing was not like the other visually uh, in, in appearance and in in function out there on the track. And that Kirk is 20 pounds over his college racing weight, essentially, and the rest of them aren't really like that. They've continued living the running life. And the, the topic is, why is it so important to have followed the path that Kirk followed, especially as an aging athlete, but for anyone that getting off the track, getting away for it, Kirk and I found OCR and then trail running and mountain running and now have come full circle. Why has that process made him faster? Whereas sticking to the normal process did not do that for other people. Now, granted, this could be seen as a one-off example, but it's not. This is the process of athletes throughout their lives. Why is it important to do all the other things we've tried and come? Why does that bring us back faster in the long run? Why doing and focusing on the other things makes you better at the thing really is what it comes down to, right? Perfect. You did it in one sentence. I took four minutes. Well, if you just took what I said out of context, it wouldn't make any sense. So I needed your preface. Um, and then the, the big component to it, I, I have a firm belief in in strength work as part of that. Yes. But but you're right. It comes down to it could be the polar opposite. It could be a mountain runner who decides to try to sharpen up in the quotes for a road marathon, like what Jim Walmsley did back in the day, or or somebody goes and pursues something out of their typical wheelhouse. And then they go back to the thing that they had spent years previously focusing on. And suddenly they've leveled up and like, that makes, that's so confusing. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I a better mountain runner now when I spent so much time on the roads the past two years and more often than not vice versa, why am I a better flat athlete now on the roads or the track after chasing OCR or hybrid or mountain racing? Like, how did that move my needle forward? And like, why like what's the power to that i think i think the latter is more common but um that's really like if we're going to take bigger picture i think we're talking about that whole thing today aren't we we are so i want to start with a little bit of broad strokes theory and then i want you to start 
diving into the the specifics. But the first general concept I want to get out there is that most of the time we follow this fallacy, which is the thing that worked for me is the thing that works for me. And so for many people, it's I ran in high school and this is what we did and I got faster and mm -hmm. I felt fast. Or for some of these gentlemen that you were racing, I ran in high school and then I ran in college and accessed a new level of training. And this is what we did. And we had national champs and we had all Americans and we were a great program. This is how I train. Or I followed this coach's style and I just progressed and progressed and progressed. And so that is the thing that works for me. And that's, that's a, it's a fallacy. Like it may have been the thing that works for you and maybe it still can, but there is not one path to running success. There are so many different ways to get fit and which one you choose or how you tweak it really is only important based on what you did prior. The thing that worked for you worked because of where you were at and the place you are at now may have different holes in it and different strengths and things cannot be done constantly the same way throughout your athletic life. Changes need to be done. So the thing that worked for you isn't necessarily your best thing. It was just your thing in that snapshot, that moment in time. Well, the interesting thing about what you bring up is that uh, if you go back to like your origin as a runner, for all of you listening, it could have started six days ago. It could have started six years ago. It could have started 30 years ago for us, uh, people like you and me. But we all like progress at some level. Like if you start running in any capacity, you will get better if your previous uh, amount of running was nothing, right? Or you were participating in other sports. And so we very easily get locked into habits that molded us when we were early runners seeing improvement. I just went out my door and ran four miles every day. And then I peered my 5k for a year and a half. Every time I showed up, I ran faster. So obviously that works. Like I just go out and run four miles every day. And so we get, and this isn't a fault to anybody because we're all guilty of this. You and me included, is we start to look at the way we began and the way we saw our most progress early as the way, like our way, right? Mm -hmm. And then we continue down that path into perpetuity. I ran intervals in high school and college. I'm going to do the same workouts as I aged into my 25, and then I'm 35, and now I'm 45, and I'm still doing the same workout with the same progressions, and I'm seeing diminishing returns on investment, for example. So it's a tricky thing because we have success in a certain style of training and we get better, but you would have success with any style of training early in your career. And that's the tricky part yes. But we tend to get stuck in the things that worked for us in the past. And it's very hard to change training philosophies as you mature as an athlete in your tenureship. And so luckily for me, I was forced to change because I found a sport that interested me that required it of me. But for those who are like, I'm still chasing marathons 20 years later, like it's my 300th marathon and I've been doing the same ver different versions of the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's very tricky. So part of me is very lucky to have found you in this sport and all these things that rattled my cage and showed me there are other ways. There are better ways. But most people aren't fortunate enough to go through that that are in the pure running spectrum. So it's my long-winded way of saying yeah. that. Um, finding ways to rattle the cage and what you were originally taught and responded to doesn't mean that's now going to be the best for you to continue your progression later in your career. Correct. So I want to give my little testimonial here, Kirk. Can I get up on stage and give a testimonial? Yep. Let's make sure the mic's working. Hold on. Yep. We're good. There it is. Yep. Testing. 
Floor is yours. I'm Bracken Crocker, and I'm here to talk to you about my mile fitness throughout my life and how fitness and training has not changed it. Mm. When I was a sophomore in college, my first mile of the year, my first indoor race, every year in college, I opened up with a mile. I was an 800 meter runner. It's very common to open up at a different distance just to shake the rust off and start building a different sort of fitness so that you can sharpen to your intended distance later. I'm sure you guys did that as well. I opened up with a mile every year. So my sophomore year, I opened up with a 431 mile. My junior year, I opened up 426. My senior year, I opened up 425. And my my super senior year, I opened up 421. So I have a pretty good track record there. 31, uh, 26, 25, 21. And if it wasn't that, it was 31, 27, 26, 21. But either way, I was in the, the mid to low 20s most of the time. And every year we train the same way. Until my last year, my first several years, every year we were running fast 200s, fast 300s, fast 400s, several times per week. We'd have some fartlek stuff in there from time to time, but that was about it. And then my last year, we started doing longer reps over winter. I was doing thousands, 1200s, miles. I was doing four mile cut down runs, six mile tempos, things like that. And that was really responsible for my jump from the mid 420s to opening up at 421. And then throughout the season, you progress and do your thing. But so opening up the season each year off of fast interval work with one year doing some longer work prior to the fast interval work, but we had an indoor track. So we ran a ton of 200s and 400s in spring to get ready for this. Well, fast forward to two years, three years after graduation, I'm training for the Spartan World Championships. The year before I had taken third and I had been beat by two gentlemen who were significantly faster than me. And so I put in a big block of 5K and 10K paced interval work. 5K paced interval work one week and 10K paced compromise the next week. I did that for something like eight or nine weeks and I jumped in a mile and I ran 420, which is essentially what I opened up at my fifth year of college at 421. Almost the identical time doing two totally different styles of training and how I felt in the race was totally different. I didn't feel fast. The pace felt very uncomfortable, but I never really faded and I ran the same exact time. And now let's fast forward five, maybe, no, that would have been six more years. I'm now training for my first 50K. And so I'm doing 60 to 70 mile weeks, which for me is a lot. I'm running nothing but long threshold work and anything spicy I'm doing is based on a hill and I run a 425 mile. So again, I'm right in the same range. My season openers throughout my entire life have been 431, 426, 425, 421, 420, 425. Hmm. This is now spanning, what, 15 years? I have those data points over 15 years. And the first four came from the same style of training. And the last two came from night and day styles of training. But I opened up at the exact same level of fitness, or at least the exact same time with different styles of fitness. Now, had I run nothing but 200s and 400s this whole time, would I have still opened up at those mile times? I don't know. I can't say. But what I can say is that by going into OCR and then into the trails and mountains, I rounded out my fitness in a way that I didn't have to do short, spicy speed work to run the same exact times that I used to run off short and spicy speed. And that concludes my testimonial. Um, the crowd goes wild. Uh, well, the interesting thing about 
Uh, and I think a lot of our listeners that have been with us through the years probably um, have heard a version of that progression, but not probably laid out quite with the training that was paired with it. Um, but you actually mm-hmm. sort of just put on a pedestal for me to talk about my biggest point. And what I'm, yeah, so thank you for that. Uh, I'll get up on stage now. Is there's a, there's a hand, this has to do with aging as well. And I know our listeners are probably like, uh, you know, like, Kirk's on this cult aging kick and performing well as you're older. And I know we have younger athletes and we have older athletes, but you're just going to have to meet me where I'm at in my life, right? Because these things are relevant to me. Um, But the biggest common theme, and I'm starting to deduct this by looking at what my fellow alumni are doing, um, and I'll have a relative amount of success. Like if you were a 15 flat 5K runner in college, and now you're running 1630 at 40 years old, I would say that's pretty dang good, right? So I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not like foo-fooing, if that's a word, what the other guys are doing because they're doing great. I think I've just held on to a higher level, higher percentage of my potential from when I was younger. And mm-hmm. so what you basically were outlining with your mile progression is, truth be told, like you were doing some long, non-sexy workouts. You were putting a little more time on feet. You were focusing on longer intervals with short recovery. You were doing workouts that required other muscle recruitment, uphill, downhill, descending, climbing. Um, Mm -hmm. You were working heavy strength work through a lot of these sectors, especially as you were preparing for hybrid was mixed in there for the first time as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Somewhere in there? Yes. Even just the body weight difference. Right. That I ran these at. There was like a 12-pound swing throughout this that kept going up as strength work got added into the equation. Right. And so there's another guy that I graduated with. Uh, He was a couple years older than me. He's an MD out in uh, San Francisco, the Bay Area anyways. Uh, David Krzyzewski. He doesn't, I don't think he listens to the podcast, but he's 42 and he's killing it. I mean, the guy... uh, is I think he just ran 535 pace for his marathon. He ran 227, 226 uh, at Boston, which, you know, is a formidable course, right? And the work I see him doing is astounding. Uh, So when I pivoted to OCR, when I found the trail, and the same thing I see David doing on his Strava is he's doing stuff that's just outside the box. The, The guys who aren't performing much better or notably worse than they did in college are still going to the track and doing fours and eights with lots of rest. And they're and they're maybe cooking a little too hot in their recovery runs or their long runs become blurry, like what's actually being accomplished here. And then I look at the people who have aged and progressed well, and everything is longer intervals, shorter rest, thresholds, progression runs, hill work every week. David's doing these hill pickups, things that are recruiting in a different way. Uh, Granted, he's running 100 mile a week still, but like what I'm getting at is the training shift for most is like you get stuck in the old pattern of short, fast, spicy, lots of rest to feel really good. You go to the track and you run a bunch of reps, take a lot of rest, and you feel really good about it. But a lot of that's just built on a a crumbling foundation. And that foundation, I still think, is longer reps, shorter rest, a new stimulus once in a while, and then, of course, strength work, which we haven't even addressed yet. And so the theme I see amongst the guys Mm -hmm. who are still racing well and even progressing as they age is a shift, a complete shift in training to what you outlined when you ran a fast mile training for ultras. It's like, 
that stuff works. It's still stay power, and we lose percentages of that as we age unless we really uh, pay it attention in, in this, the time it's deserved in training. And so the biggest theme now that I'm gathering all this goes to that. None of it's flashy. You think you want to go do 8 by 800 with three minutes rest? How about 16 by 800s with 30 seconds jog recovery? Whoa, those aren't even close to the same workout, but you're still doing 800s. I mean, that's the stuff I'm talking about. I don't know how else to lay it out, but I, hopefully that all tracks. I'm going to lay it out in a different way now because you're right. Clean it up for me. I'm not cleaning it. I'm just taking it from a different perspective. Uh, I, I talked about this in a different episode um, about sometimes we forget to look at our sport like we look at other sports in terms of the skill involved and how you train for it. But let's take basketball. When someone comes up into the league as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, they're getting by people with youth. Mm -hmm. They're just twitchier. When they get to the rim, they finish by going over the top of someone. When they create space, they create space by having a faster first step and they can stop on a dime quicker. It's not that their balance is better. It's not that they're stronger. It's not that they're more skilled. They're just more athletic than the veterans in the league. And they're choosing to go over rather than around. And then as they age, they start losing half of a step and then a full step. And what that's replaced with is targeted strength work so that you can move your defender now rather than just blowing around them. And now you create space off of targeted moves and progressions combined with better balance and staying underneath yourself and being able to combine now my strength with my balance, with having seen it all before. And eventually you're barely leaving the ground and you're still finishing at the rim or under the rim, or through contact, things you would have just dunked in the past, now you're craftily laying it in in a different way. And you're still scoring the same way, sometimes better, but you've had to change the way you train as your body changes the way it can perform. And it's very obvious that when your vertical changes from 42 inches to 36 inches, you have to build in compensatory skills. But you still have to keep in explosion training, otherwise it's going to drop down to 28 inches real quick but you don't spend all your time trying to be the most explosive athlete anymore. But we forget about that with running a lot of times. In our teens or 20s, yeah, we can run fast off twos and fours because we're twitchy and we're explosive and we recover fast and we're the most just dynamic versions of ourselves we're ever going to be. So when you run 10 by 400 with three minute rest, you're putting that into the most fertile ground you've ever had. Now, 10 years later, running 10 by 400 happens on a very degraded type of fertility in that ground. It can't sink in as deep and it's not going to grow as high. So even though you're running the same workouts, you understand while you're doing it, you feel that this stride isn't as good as it used to be. I'm not popping off the ground I, the way I used to. I'm not running quite as fast as I used to on each any given rep or it takes more out of me. Well, of course, you're not going to run as fast off that workout because you can't put into the workout the same and you can't recover from it the same. So now you have to build in compensatory skills. And instead of compensatory skills, we have to actually compensate with our structure, our physicality, this different systems that we work on. We can't run a mile or a 5K off fast twitch anymore off of pure anaerobic burst. Now we have to do it off strength. Now we have to do it off resiliency. Now we have to do it off proper pacing and great recovery and things like that. And sometimes we forget those things. Yeah, those are all really good points. Um, and 
I guess adding in, you did mention the word like the word strength or strength work is something I want to uh, mm -hmm. give lip service to in this. And yes, I believe it starts when you're younger. And yes, you should be doing this at all times. Um, but when you talk about the young athlete who's twitchy and explosive and has a whatever 42 inch vertical or whatever crazy number you said, I think mine's like 16 now, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I'm sure it's not that bad, but, uh, I've never been able to touch the rim on the hoop, by the way. And you've been able to dunk a basketball. So you think you could still dunk today? I did last year and I'm healthier this year. So the answer is yes. Yeah, I think so. Well, when you talk, okay, well, not me. When you talk about the explosiveness, um, of that basketball athlete, for example, a lot of that has to do with just like let's call it muscle contracture, tendon ligament, elasticity, generation of power, all of those things. And as you get older, we are unable to produce as much force innately. Let's say basketball player who's 18 turns into basketball player who's 38, and he has not done any strength work, plyo work to maintain that. He is going to be a very, very degraded version of of his old self because he's done nothing to combat the force production loss that is going to happen with time. Like it is inevitable, right? Mm -hmm. Even Michael Jordan may not be able to dunk anymore. For example, probably can still dunk, but you get the point only because he's six, six. Yeah. He just has to put his hands in the air, but I firmly believe that the two key components to being 40 running is I haven't run a 15, 17, five K since college. Right. It, in fact, the year after being an All-American, I ran 15.27 in a road race and 15.40, 15.41 in a road race that same year. So point being, as I ran faster on the track uh, two decades later, is that I really believe that my – yes, like you look on, the, on a piece of paper and you say, okay, Kirk when he was 20 and Kirk when he is 40. Kirk when he's 20, 50 miles a week short, fast intervals for the most part, 150 pounds. You say Kirk is 20 years older. Now he's 170 pounds. He's gained 20 pounds. On paper alone, not a chance. Like I'm already writing this guy off. Like Kirk running faster? No, he's 20 pounds heavier. Like I don't care what kind of training you're doing. There's no way. Like that defies physics and the laws of gravity and putting running into motion. But what it doesn't address is tra uh, training changes and then the fact that I firmly believe that my force production as a 40-year-old man is as good or better than it ever was as a 20-year-old young man. And that each time my foot hits the ground, each time my arm swings and has to carry me through the motion, I've maintained or built a higher percentage of force production versus my younger self. And especially compared to the others who are aging along with me. The conversations I had at this track meet last week, I don't touch strength work. Phil Rickard, I had a nice conversation with who was a previous National Division Three champ. And I think he ran 15.30, so I bridged the gap on him even more. I think I beat him by 14 seconds or something. But really nice guy. We had a nice chat in the cool down. He's like, yeah, I don't touch weights. Like, I haven't, done, I haven't lifted a weight in my life. Well, Phil ran a minute faster than me in college in the 5K. And now the tables have turned. <laughs> a former teammate of mine says the only thing he does for leg work is box jumps. And he's like, you have any advice? I was trying to preach to him strength work in the cool down because everybody's like, I don't get why you're still running fast and with your body weight. And I said, yeah, get under a heavy barbell and do five sets of five and let's add some Bulgarian split squats in there. And he's, I could tell he's like, not going to do it. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I just like my box jumps. And so what I'm getting at, it's a long-winded way of saying, even though I'm heavier, I think force production is key. Maintaining muscle mass is key. And then of course, 
also pivoting a training style from what I had done previously, I think are all the factors that have added up to being able to maintain a, a good level of fitness as I age. And then you add in the whole component of I chase trail mountain races and we've done OCR and I've forced myself to grow on other ends of the fitness spectrum. And so if you're realizing you're only heading one way with your fitness as you age, or you're just not getting any better, well, then the answer is to rattle the cage and maybe listen to some of the things that we're talking about. And I'm probably rambling at this point, but hopefully a few uh, decent arguments got jammed in there. And I'm sure you can... No rambling yet. Well, we're close. I'm going to spawn here. I'm going to respawn. Yeah, could you spawn, please? (laughs) (laughs) As a coach, I believe there are three things that determine how well we race. We can train three components. It is our systems, our structure, and our mind. So the systems is the part that we talk about most of the time, right? Your anaerobic system, your aerobic system, different versions of that, whether you're working at VO2 max or lactate threshold, you can get real techie about how you want to talk about, but it's the internal workings of your body. Oxygen transport really drives the way there. Lactate buffering, things like that. Systems. Then you have structure, bones, muscles, tendons, ligaments, things like that, that actually support your running. And then you have your mind. So if you have those three things and systems are still being worked the way they always have been, but your structure has gotten worse, you get slower. That's, that's just an easy equation right there. If you go from 20 to 30 and 30 to 40, and you are doing the same system work, even though your systems maybe can get a little better, like your high-end anaerobic may drop a little, but your aerobic has gone up a bunch, your structure is getting worse. And so things naturally start to degrade. And so if you do nothing to stop the degradation of your structure, it doesn't matter how much you work your systems because your structure will continue to fail you. And so the example of someone who's like, I'm still running my mileage and I'm still hitting my quality workouts, but I won't touch weights. Listen, we get it. There's a big stigma about that, but you're ruling out one of the three ways you can get better. Mm -hmm. And even if you can't improve your structure, which I believe you can, you can stop the degradation, which happens to everyone. The older we get, the more we get closer to death and we break down and break down and break down and things begin to rot and we die. (laughs) That's the life cycle, but you can slow that. And the simplest, easiest, most effective way of naturally stopping the aging process and specifically in the structure of your body is to weight train. That's the number one thing for osteoporosis, right? Make sure you're getting the nutrition and put weight against your bones. It's proven. You can fix your structure through weight training. And so as you age and you can't pop off the ground anymore and everything aches when you run and you're not recovering, fix your structure. That only supports your system work that you're doing. It's easy. It's really easy. It just is either intimidating or not enticing to the typical runner. Well, logic tells you like heavier isn't faster. Correct. And logic tells you strength training means heavier. Mm-hmm. And so by default, you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. And I think, where, I think where people get a little misguided is in college we did. So this athlete I'm talking about, Michael Worley, he's great. I love the guy. He's a year older than me. He's the one who asked me for some lower leg work. And 
he went out of his way to text me after the race and said, so what do you do? And you said you think strength work is the key to this all. What You have some recommendations. And I said, well, what have you been doing? And he says, oh, the same stuff since we've been doing since college. What was that? Oh, we did some back and forth lateral drills. We did a few body weight lunges and he added in box jumps. So he's been doing the same exact thing since college. And there's a big, I think a big misconception between using your own body weight for movements and then adding additional body weight or additional weight for movements. And we don't need to get into the whole hormone production and all that side of, of, but we should, we when we have in other episodes, but the things that are like the intangibles, like how is squatting going to make me run faster? Well, if your testosterone is, is 50 ticks higher because you've been hitting strength work and you're stronger because you've been hitting strength work. And if Bracken says we are slowly rotting from the inside, and this is like rust proofing your muscles mm-hmm. and your body, then you start to look and you say, okay, what, what simple gravity versus running fast logic tells you is completely false as the table of ages sort of turns, right? And so spending time not running and doing the right things absolutely makes you a better runner as time continues to go on. And you can even look at like, um, and I'm not saying these guys are running necessarily their fastest in their entire life, but I know one guy who basically is, and that's Rich Ryan. I mean, he's running, he ran faster post-collegiately than he ever did in college, right? And what is he? He's weight training like a boss. Mm -hmm. He's up 15 pounds. Ryan Kent had to have come close in his peak Spartan days, and he was getting under heavy load. And running 20, 30 miles a week mm-hmm. with strength training. Um, so the point I'm getting at is uh, to piggyback what you'd said is like, even though it doesn't make sense logically, weight to run pace ratio, that stuff starts to not matter as much as force production, longevity, hormone production, those other things that we lose as we age, those things that make us vibrant and vigorous and full of piss and vinegar as young men and women, like those slowly fizzle out, right? slowly wane as you get a little older and these are the ways to prevent that and so you have a a youthful vibrance to your racing and running if you can just stave off those things slowly rotting away and killing you and so the strength piece i believe is a big even if you're not and sorry to keep going on this but like i firmly believe that even putting your body somebody can say a five by five routine on the bench press and these david hasselhoff boobs are going to do you no good running a fast 5k And I say, you're right. Logically, you are right. But what it does on the things you can't see, Mm -hmm. the nervous system, the hormones, like we all talked about, those things, like who cares that my pecs aren't involved with a 5K? That doesn't even matter. That's not even in the equation. It's all the intangibles that you can't physically see. Right. And so another way of saying the same thing. It's kind of like pick your poison. Do I want to be at my lightest weight? when I'm no longer in college or not someone who's racing for their living, just as the everyday person trying to be fast. Do I want to be at my lightest possible weight and always dealing with something? Or do I want to carry too much, but I'm always available to train? Hmm. Which one do you want to deal with? At some point, you want to be available. And then you add in the third column, which is mental. If we've improved our structure, We never stopped working on our systems. Now, mentally, strength training does harden you mentally, but looking good and feeling good improves you mentally. And if you're coming to the the plate with that part of you now improved as well, 
it's a net win. Like just gaining weight doesn't make you slower. There's a reason that power to weight ratio is everything in auto sports and in things like cycling and in triathlon. We don't use it as much in running because up until recently, force production, putting out watts as a runner wasn't really able to be tracked well, but it's a real thing. Like the equation is real. It drives everything in all these other sports. And so putting on weight isn't the issue. It's putting on weight that's not useful is the issue to people. And if you add five pounds to your body and you can now put out 200 more pounds of force, that is a net positive. And now you feel better physically. You're releasing more good chemicals into your body. You're recovering better as a result. You're sleeping better. You walk around feeling better about yourself. That is all a net positive and you are now a better runner for it. So even though if in a vacuum, your 140 pound self had a higher uh, ceiling for running, you have to be healthy and consistent in order to get there. So if by bulletproofing your body, you lower your ceiling a little bit, but can stay near it at all times, to us, it's a no brainer, especially as we age, which everyone listening to this podcast is aging. That's just the way it's going to be. We don't have very many people who will listen to this who are going to stay young forever. So this will affect you. Mm. And we're not saying this in like in a judgy way, even though I'm kind of using a sarcastic tone throughout a lot of this. It's just, I want it to be so obvious and in your face that you wouldn't bother not trying to do it. Yeah. And as a side, uh, a side note to something you just said, and this is something I've noticed and this is even including when leg work is involved, at least when I'm in a good routine where I'm doing it regularly and the doms isn't so crippling, I can't put my socks on. Um, I recover, <laughs> but I recover better when I do strength work. Like I actually am more mm. ready to run well, like, and it has to do with hormone production or nervous system stimulation. But if I like, let's say this afternoon, I might do a push and pull workout, just upper body. I most likely am going to feel better tomorrow for my quality run session than I would if I had not strength trained the day before. And I often do the same, like I might heavy squat and then do a speed session on the track the next day. And yeah, I might have to work through some kinks in my warm up, but overall, I feel like my adaptation recovery cycle is notably quicker when I'm putting my body under heavy load in particular, like that systemic shake. Do you, do you notice any difference there for you? Yeah, I do. And you're right. It has to happen after you've established your baseline for it. Correct. You have to do it long enough that it's not crippling anymore. But science has proven that active recovery is better than passive recovery. And so now you add good hormonal release to that and you're golden. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, um, for sure. It's just something I notice more and more. Um, but let's talk about, okay, so did we get the strength thing across, do you think? did you Do you want to dive into, I mean, more specifics? And maybe we need to go back and redo a strength training for runners episode. It's been a while. Maybe we could go back and chat that out coming up. Maybe give us some feedback if you guys want to hear that, because I don't know when the last time mm -hmm. we did a full episode dedicated to strength for runners. But what else are we missing on that component before people start rolling their eyes as we keep talking about it? I think the older we get, and I'm saying anything past our prime, the older we get, the easier it is for the race to go off the rails. The less wiggle room we have in our body for things. And strength training provides you more wiggle room for when something is paced improperly or when something is over str overly stressed in a race. If all the surrounding areas are stronger and able and used to firing at full capacity, 
they pick up the slack for you. We all have that area of our body where at the end of races or long runs or long workouts, that area starts to fatigue. The weight room can fix that. It doesn't address your fitness, but it addresses the structure. And when the structure is sound everywhere, no one area has to overwork. And then when areas do get overworked, they have helping hands behind them supporting it. And the older we get, the more we need helping hands. So again, the strength work, it doesn't have to be bodybuilding. You don't have to turn into a strong man. You just have to do the work that's going to support your structure. Do it heavy. Yes, become a strong man, strong woman. Do it heavy. Yeah, get strong throughout it. Yeah. I just don't want you grabbing two and a half pound pink dumbbells. If you're doing that, you might as well just stay on the couch. There, I said it. I hope that hurt somebody's Not feelings. Me. I hope two that... and a half pound pink dumbbells are better than the couch. <laughs> I'm being tongue in cheek here, but I hope that hurt somebody's feelings out there. And I hope instead of the two and a halfs next time, you grab the 25s and you buck up. Um, let's talk about the and one. heavy. I will say this. Heavy is what's heavy to you. Right. We don't care about numbers. We care about exertion. If you pick the bar up and you're squatting against that and you're quivering on the way up, good for you. That is heavy. Yeah. And no one has any right to judge that. Yes, you do. Two and a half pounds is not heavy. I don't care who you are. <laughs> but I agree with you. <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, before I put my foot in my mouth too much, um, let's talk about the, the other mm -hmm. side of the coin then about the... Uh, Train, not training for the thing and then get it, getting better at the thing. Um, if you're somebody who has feels like you're not getting better or you're going one direction and it's slower, whether you're 15, 25, 35, or 40, or 60, I guess really, um, there's power to introducing new stimulus. Strength work would be new stimulus if you're somebody who's not really on board with that train, for example. Incorporating mountain running when you're going to only race flat is incorporating new stimulus that can sort of sharpen both edges of your sword and and be a fail safe when it comes to fatiguing on flat ground i think there is a there is merit to choosing a modality in which isn't your thing and this is again if you're progressing with your current training of course like see that through if you're getting better like don't i won't change much of the script until until you realize you've walked into the wall three times and you're not progressing past mm -hmm. that point anymore but for those of you who have been floating in the same area for three years or whatever it's time to introduce something new and you would be shocked and i've said this before but when i started training for ocr and i initially hired bracken and suddenly i'm doing treadmill work at 15 percent, which might as well have been climbing everest because it felt awful and i was going to the ski hill and ripping uh plate drags and running up down intervals and all this stuff and I had been running 16.15 in the 5K for three years. And then I go run a road race and run 15.41 and had put no more time in, did absolutely nothing different, took my tr strength training a little more seriously. And I was like, I can't even, I haven't even done the speed work I used to be doing, yet I'm 30 seconds per mile faster or 30 per seconds in a 5K faster. I just rattled my damn cage. I threw stimulus at my body that it wasn't used to and it adapted in a different way that made me better at the old thing. And I was stagnant for sure in my progression. I was circling the same waters for a few years and OCR and you and changing my outlook on it really paid off uh, again with no more time investment. And so that's where you need to start thinking about that. You're great at the mountains, but your 5k stuck and you have a marathon coming up. Like, Hey, maybe, maybe you buy some road shoes, start grinding on flat terrain. Could be that as well. But I just want you to give me your thoughts on 
that whole conversation. Well, I believe in it wholeheartedly because we've watched our entire lives. Someone, even in the track world, they're a miler, they're a miler, they're a miler. They spend all spring working on the 5k and they PR their mile. Mm -hmm. Or they're an 800 meter runner who spends the off season running some 400s. Then they come back and they win nationals in the 800. When you get away from the thing you've always been doing, you get this immediate jump up from a new stimulus. Our bodies are masters of responding to stimulus. We are masters of adaptation. We are the weakest species on the planet. And yet we survive because of our <laughs> alleged intelligence and our incredible ability to adapt to stimulus. Those are our two greatest strengths as humans. And so we need to lean into that. When you are stagnant, you're either about to break through <laughs> Or you need something new added in. That's all there is to it. Or diff yeah, different. New, different. I guess it's the same thing. And I was talking with a few people this week because everyone's been so excited about your running. People that I work with, people that uh, know both of us, they, they wanted to talk about your race. And one thing that kept coming up is how important our journey through OCR has been for our minds. 100%. And it, it, I, was, I was chatting with uh, Corey Fellows. He came up and we did a hill workout together on Saturday at The Rock. And we were talking about how OCR is a gateway drug for many people. It's not their end game, generally. People find OCR and then fall in love with whatever their final, uh, the final boss level is for them. Maybe it is OCR, but usually it leads them to, wow, I love trail running or I love mountain running or I want to run on the track or it gets them used to running again or for the first time ever. And you work on so many different facets of fitness that you find the one you really love, but you arrive really well-rounded. And so, yes, physically, systemically, we are more well-rounded than we've ever been. But what OCR doesn't do ever is care about you. When's the last time you were on a course and they were like, hey, we got heavy rains, we're going to di divert the course. Mm -hmm. Or there's... There's uh we've had a uh, we've had uh, too much mud in this section or the rocks are really loose this year we're not going to go down this scree field or it's way too hot we're going to shorten it or postpone or it's too cold I'm sorry we're not going to do it no the only time you hear about that is if a creek overflows we don't cross it or if the water air temperature was in the danger zone in Tahoe. Outside of that, if it's 100 degrees or if it's zero degrees or if it's pouring, I mean, it's really just lightning. That's the only thing that cancels these races. And so you get used to just competing in every version of weather you could possibly compete in and in every style of terrain you could possibly compete in. And then because you're going to compete in that, you might as well train in it. And so we get used to training in thunderstorms and excessive heat and freezing cold. And then you get to a day like yours where both your 5Ks this year were in excessive hot and humid conditions and you stayed the closest to your ceiling than anyone else there. Mm. You were closer to your PR than anyone else in the elite field. And it's because your body and mind were a little bit more diverse in their resiliency. I wouldn't dare do them the disservice of saying you were the toughest person there, but you had a specific type of toughness that no one else there had cultivated. And it's because you've tried so many different versions of endurance and training, both in stimulus and in temperature, that you had a resiliency that was very much all-inclusive. Yeah, that's something we don't really talk about very much 
that specific conversation of what OCR, I mean, OCR can break you and you can walk away with your tail between your legs and say, F that, like I'm out, of course. And a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. But the ones that stick around, the ones that callous themselves to the unknown, the ones who feel completely shattered when they summit a climb in West Virginia, only to find out they got to go right back up that climb with a 70-pound bucket. Rediscovering limits, being forced to be put in strenuous situations you didn't know existed when you already think you've been stretched to your mm -hmm. limit and your hamstrings cramping and you have two and a half miles to go and there's still a sandbag carry. Some would call energy management and always holding back and saving a little bit for the unknown, but then there's those who really sink their teeth into the races at times and you're forced to refine your limit and crack and rebound and crack and rebound and just get gritty. And then pretty soon external factors don't matter. And then when you toe the line for your 5K or your marathon and you say, you know what, I'm going to cook 10 seconds per mile too hot here. It can't hurt more intensely than anything I've felt before. Like I'm not going to give up on this because I've already cracked and then did a bucket carry for a quarter of a mile up 30% grade. Like, yeah, suffering a little bit and going out hot hurts, but I have new comparatives now. And that sort of intense pain is perspective. And that allows you to sink your mm -hmm. teeth into efforts when things get bad. And I think everything else aside in the conversation, and I think mountain races can do that to you as well, where you're climbing and descending and and peaking and valleying, like the way it revs your system and then you have to fight through it. Um, for that alone, the mental side, I think that diverting to something different, OCR in particular, or I think trail racing, long trail racing, builds calluses that you just can't like get on the track or on the roads. It's just impossible, almost impossible comparatively. So I think there's a lot to be said about what you just talked about that I don't often like think about, but I think you're right. It's the kind of thing you don't think about until you're in the moment. Now, running has my heart, but OCR has my respect. I fully am on board oftentimes with the idea that OCR is kind of dumb. Mm -hmm. There are so many times I look at it and say, this is a stupid sport, but I am so much better as an athlete for having found this stupid sport. Yeah. Like it is, it is a dumb endeavor, but there's so much use to it for us as non-professional aging athletes that you can't replicate it. Every hot race I've ever run since doing OCR has been manageable. Every cold race, it's like, yes, it's really cold, but I don't have to swim. Right. There's no lake plunge or river crossing in the middle of this. So yeah, it's cold, but my hands aren't soaked and freezing. My compression shorts aren't freezing to my leg. Like I, It's not as bad. My toes aren't numb. It's cold, but it's not that type of cold. Or you get, we hit a stretch one time. I think I talked about this during our Thanksgiving five mile race where we ran down onto a bike path and snow had blown over the top and it was icy and slick and everyone ground to a halt. And I put like 35 seconds on the pack in 200 meters. <laughs> These are, they're all better runners than me. I caught up and passed them because yeah, this is slick conditions, but this is not <laughs> by any means the worst grip I've ever run in. And I know how to handle this type of condition. I have a stride I can go to that can run on really bad surfaces. So it's just, like you said, it's a matter of perspective. Mm -hmm. Whether you like or dislike or respect or disrespect OCR, I don't think it's arguable, the idea that it creates more resiliency in you and it gives you a perspective that very few sports can give you. Yeah, I think the word perspective is exactly correct. Um, 
I think back like when I was playing like song like the song and dance the uh, or the ebb and flowing of the injury cycle three to five years ago and I was in and out of monitoring stuff and I still am but I have it more under control now and I would do something like okay I'm gonna race a two-hour beast race but I can't run for two hours so I did these ladders a hundred burpees a mile run 90 burpees 0.9 mile run I also did it on the assault bike 100 burpees, 100 calories, 90 burpees, 90 calories. Things that were so miserable and stupid. Honestly, stupid. What am I really accomplishing there? There's no burpee assault bike race to prepare for that I know of, is there, Bracken? So, I mean, I got. There shouldn't be. I got great heart rate stimulus, things like that, of course. But, like, if you can sit in that and you can do that which is so far from running mm-hmm. 448 pace for a 5K on the track in pristine conditions. How does a burpee assault bike ladder translate? It doesn't physiologically, physically, biomechanically, but like you're so right. There's something to doing hard crap. Want to get better at the 5K? Go do a 24-hour mountain race. I'm being exag- exaggeratory, but... The point remains the same. <laughs> perspective perspective is important. Yeah. How much can 15 minutes hurt? Screw it. Let's cook. Let's cook hot. Because I've hurt before. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you've talked about it before. Like, go ahead and pluck a mustache hair out. <laughs> Whoa, that hurts. All right, smash my hand with a hammer and then pluck a mustache hair out. Go ahead, pluck them all. I don't care because right. that is not even close to getting my hands smashed with a hammer. And that, the ability to sit in it, and we like using that term, just sit in it. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. Just sit in it longer than the people around you. That only comes from crazy stimulus. And in the running world, if you need to get that crazy, agonizing stimulus, it comes from a very destructive workout. Mm-hmm. We've had some of those and they are so miserable. You can't even fathom getting yourself up for that type of workout for another month. But if you combine some of the things we've learned from OCR, you can do one a week and recover from it just fine. So no, if I could only choose one thing to do the rest of my life, goodbye OCR. I love running. Mm-hmm. I will just purely run. But having experienced it has been the most invaluable thing the most invaluable aspect of my running I could have ever had. I could not agree with you more. Flying across country to altitude races with one arm tied behind my back, basically running in the mountains, doing shit so far out of what's comfortable without question has probably been the biggest game changer, those type of things. And, and I would argue like the mustache hair thing, like fine, the nose hair thing, I might have you smash my hand. That's a different level there. I don't know. (laughs) Nose hairs are rough. They're pretty rough. All right. So last thing I have yep. is that what OCR did for us, not that this is the point of the episode, is that ever, this and hybrid racing, there are so many facets to it that it forced us to finally say, I will stop caring about my running volume and only care about systems and structure. It was the only thing that got me away from trying to hit a metric for my running volume per week, because eventually there were too many other pieces to hit. I had to hit vert. I had to work on downhill running. I had to get heavy carries. I had to get strength in. Early on, there were a ton of races with too much swimming in to just get by. You had to practice it. Well, those are five things to work on in my week. And if I'm doing downhill work and lifting, I just can't hit the running volume that I'd like to hit. It used to be I didn't feel fit unless I was hitting 70 miles a week running. 
that's when I knew I was at my most fit. When I finally had to just say, okay, forget the running volume. I'm going to make sure I get all my systems and structure in place and then fill it with as much running volume as I can handle. And then found out I run the same times <laughs> based on that compared to the other style. It was very free. So if nothing else, that way of looking at training has given you and I the confidence to just train how we feel our bodies need to train rather than I always ran 60 to 80. I need to run 60 to 80 with these quality workouts or it won't be the same. We got to find out the other way because we were forced to through this other sport and then find out we run the same off this, but we have better state power. It was really, really valuable. And we wouldn't have found that unless we were forced to adapt and try it. Or we run better off it, not even the same. Which is mind-blowing in itself. Longevity, yeah. Right. That's king, as I'm finding out. Um, so I'll summate my points then. Basically, what this is turning into is like, so you've plateaued or you're heading the wrong direction with your fitness. How can I change that? And I don't mean a plateau for two weeks. I mean, like, you've done the same crap for years or you've only slowly trended the wrong direction as you age. Mm -hmm. And really, it comes down to get your dang strength work in without question. Short, fast intervals are cool and important, and yes, they need to be in there. But think about multiplying reps and shortening rest. I think that's been the highest. And just like the non-sexy tempo progression threshold work, like make sure that stuff, like if you're in the old mindset of going to the track and ripping quick stuff with lots of rest, that'll that'll you'll hit your ceiling very quick doing that style only. And so shifting away from that and then doing some other big different types of running or training in the aerobic front that um, you have a hard time seeing how it would translate in the moment to your desired race. But trust me, by the laws of who knows what, it will make you better at that race. I don't we I don't even need to justify it with anything else other mm -hmm. than what we've talked about today. So I would summate it in those three ways. Um, and then I think your aspect of doing something that's so out of your comfort zone, it forces a mental resiliency that uh, you are forced into, I guess. But am I missing anything there? No. I'll recap my main point, which is you have three things to work on. You have your systems, you have your structure, and you have your mind. And if you're continually turning your back on one or two of those, you have low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Even if they don't look enticing, it's low-hanging fruit. I can't tell if we were very poignant with our topic today or if we went in a lot of different random circles, ended up in the same place. But we're in and out. We, I think we weaved in and out today, but I think we got the points across. Sometimes you just got to get preachy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Are you, uh, I guess not that we need to get into this and we do need to wrap, but do you have anything on your immediate horizon right now as far as races? Because I don't right now. Um, after this last track 5k, I don't know where my opportunities fall to keep chasing this. So I need to do some digging, but I have nothing officially on my calendar right now. And got me thinking, does Bracken have anything on his calendar? I have two things on my calendar and two, uh, three penciled in. Okay. So I have a DECA doubles with Jack oh. in November, 11-11. Is that in Make Chicago? Where is that one? Dallas? Yep. Chicago. Chicago, yeah. 18th is Dallas, maybe. Yeah, that good old Navy Pier. It's the week after, yes. Okay. Uh, then in November, I'm going to go back and do that five mile Thanksgiving race that I always did in the past. This will be my first time in three years that I'm healthy enough to do it, assuming I make it there. And then in, uh, on the 23rd, there's a deck a mile in, in Illinois that I would like to do. Got a little like niggle in my calf that I'm working on right now. It just popped up the last four days. So assuming that is under control. That'll be one that's penciled in. 
and then assuming this block of training, these next 13 weeks go well, I'm going to go after the Lakeshore FKT again, and then I'm going to go up to the the Porcupine Mountains and try to do that. That's not really mountains, but that's what it's called, and go after that FKT. Uh, you mentioned the Porcupine thing to me only very passively. The Lakeshore FKT, I, I don't know if you'd want company for that or not, but <sighs> here's <laughs> we can talk about it. I would, I, I would gladly be a pacer. I I would not say no to that. If you have a pacer, it turns into supported oh. rather than unsupported or self-supported, which doesn't matter to me. The time's the time. It, it's more from my PR rather than the FKT. It just also happens to be an FKT. But what I would finish knowing is that you were faster, even if you stuck with me the entire time. Not that that changes you coming down or not. What if we went opposite direction? Well, that would be really interesting and kind of fun, that would but fun. you should... Get it once to know the the route. Hmm. So maybe we run it together once, and then uh, and then like in spring, go back and go opposite directions and rip. Yeah, we can talk about it. I'd like to do something like that with you. You should. Okay, That'd be a lot of fun. Would be fun. So yeah, I guess I have four or five things on my calendar. Cool. I don't know what I'm doing with my life right now. I'm running. I mean, you're only 17 seconds away. <sighs> I know. <laughs> and not to not to go down too far that rabbit hole, but you should strike when the iron is hot. Like right, like if things are going well, I should try to find another one to get in right away. Or heaven forbid, wait till you're 41 or 42 to get more honest cracks at it. And like odds don't start to shift the right direction, right? And so it's like shoot. Nope. I'll figure it out. I'd find a 5K road race and go rip. But could it count? Like, can you count that? If it's a certified course, yeah. Certified awesome USATF certified courses. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you listening today. Hopefully you got something out of this. And even if you're 18 years old, hopefully you're reminded of this conversation someday when there's not quite that uh, 42-inch vertical in those bones anymore. This will ring true at some point in your life. If compounding interest is real, which it is, the earlier you start, the better. That's very true. All right, guys, we'll see you later this week on Friday for a long run episode. See you Friday.